Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. We love to learn. We love to fellowship. We love the grace that you've shown to make us brothers and sisters and adopted into the family of God. And we want to understand how to apply your word in our lives. And we ask you to help us to have wisdom to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just start reading, okay? 1 Corinthians 1, one. Paul called us an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now let's look at verse 2. What do we learn from that? Well, notice that the term sanctified can be used in two different ways in the Bible. In this sense, it's used as something that's already happened. Okay? So every person who's been converted, in this sense, is sanctified. They're holy. They're called. They're part of the body of Christ. They're assured ultimately of the resurrection and so on. In another sense, the term sanctified is used for progressive sanctification as you become more actually like Jesus Christ. Notice it says saints by calling. Now the calling that Paul is talking about here, there's two senses in which the term called is used in the New Testament. And it's important to understand these. One sense is the internal call, Okay, so if the evangelist goes out and preaches the gospel, God's elect hear that call internally, and they respond in faith. The other way the term called is used, and this actually is very rare, it's used this way, I think only in one verse, where it says many are called and few are chosen. The other way it is used is for the universal call. Where we, where we preach and we say, come to Jesus Christ. And everybody hears that with their ears. Okay? But if they hear it on the inside, they'll actually respond in faith. And we don't know who that might be. So the saints here are the people who are called. Meaning here the inner call. Saints by calling. Who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So, How do you know somebody heard the inner call? Well, they're willing to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in a sense, here it says, in every place, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the definition of the church militant, the universal church. Uh, Well, uh, uh, no, militant is different. The universal church would be everybody who is ever saved, including the ones in heaven. The church militant would be everyone who is saved who's now alive and still fighting the battle down here on on the earth. But it would be everyone. And we can't know who that is. I mean, we can only approximately know. If we're in a local church and people love Jesus Christ and they talk about the gospel and they have faith, we can know with a certain level of assurance that these people really love the Lord and they're part of the church. But you can't see the invisible church. The invisible church is everyone who's actually saved. And within the visible church, there's always going to be a few people 
that are like the Judas amongst the disciples who appear to be one of us, but they're really not. So that's how we define the church. Let's go on here. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Karos. Oh, Greek word for peace. Peace, peace, peace. I'm thinking of shalom. What's the, what's the Greek? Urine. That's right. So he's combining the Hebrew greeting and the Greek one here. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Notice he's affirming here speech and knowledge would be things that they would value, but he's here speaking almost ironically about the real speech and knowledge that comes from Christ, not the Greek uh, rhetoric and the Greek gnosis that the people in their culture loved so much. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We unashamedly at Twin City Fellowship teach the perseverance of the saints. Okay, There are people out there who vehemently and angrily demand that it's possible that people lose their salvation. And they accuse people like me of being false teachers because I teach that when God saves somebody, God keeps somebody. Now, I, the, how do we teach this? Well, it's just right out of the Scripture. We just read it right here. You look in Romans 8, and the ones that he justified and sanctified, he also glorifies. Okay? I'm not embarrassed to teach that. You know what? Dangling people over the pit of hell doesn't make them better Christians. Okay? Telling people what well, your salvation is ready to slip away at any second doesn't help them. It doesn't make them comforted. One of the reasons the Reformers taught the perseverance of the saints, and besides the obvious fact that it's biblical, was that that was the Catholic Church's way of controlling people. You control salvation, you have the means of salvation, and you tell people they're ready to lose it at any moment. Anybody ever see that movie, Luther? That was very well done, by the way. And so they were showing all the flames and hell and put the money in, maybe somebody will get out of purgatory. Salvation is always dangling, it's always ready to go away, and you need us to keep it working for you. If salvation is a free gift and God gives it to a person and then God keeps that person who received it, you just take away the power of men to control them. They can't. There's nothing they can do. They can't give it to you. They can't take it away from you. They can't sell it to you and what have you. And so <laughs> I've said many times, what sort of eternal life is temporary? <laughs> if it's eternal, I'm telling you, it's not temporary. Okay? So if you have eternal life, you have eternal life. By the way, we'll take... Comments and discussion anytime today. There's, okay, Roger, Roger Beach over here. Aren't these the same people that are Arminian that believe that we participate in our salvation? Yeah, exactly. The big 
issue, remember the remonstrance came up with their five points. See, TULIP that you hear about was never taught by Calvin or Luther. It came up a hundred years later as a response to the remonstrance. And the remonstrance had five points, and so then some of the so-called Calvinists of the time came up with their five points to rebut their five points. But yeah, we, we add something. Okay, salvation according to Arminianism and semi-Pelagianism is that God does his part, man does his part, you add the two together synergistically, and you end up with salvation. Now that is precisely what is taught in the Council of Trent. Okay? Absolutely. You, you read the Canons on Justification in Trent, and it, it uh, anathematizes anybody who doesn't teach free will. And anathematizes anybody who teaches monergism, that salvation is entirely a work of God. So the remonstrance came up with the idea that God does his part, man does his part, and then between the two you end up with salvation unless you quit doing your part. And then you lose it again. All right? That doctrine, by the way, has been believed in America for the last 150 years since the time of Finney. And I blame it for the entire demise of the evangelical movement. Because once you believe that you can get man to add something to salvation without it being a total work of God, then the whole seeker movement makes all the sense in the world. Maybe you can get them in if you have a better rock band, right? And you, you have, uh, uh, it sounds good, it's pleasing, and woo them, entice them, and maybe they'll do their part. That's what the whole concept is that is the seeker-sensitive movement. But I'll tell you the greatest thing that ever happened in my life as a Christian preacher is in 1986 when it was my job to teach verse by verse through Romans. I started teaching through Romans and I ordered four or five commentaries. Okay, Well, one of the first ones I ordered was by William Hendrickson. And the thing comes in the mail, paid 25 bucks for it. That's a lot of money in 1986. Okay, <laughs> And here comes this commentary and I turned, flipped over to the back cover and it said the guy taught a dort or uh, he was uh, Christian Reformed. Well, I grew up in Christian Reformed land. And uh, in our mind, in Iowa, Reform meant hypocrite. Now, th- there was a reason why we thought that, because this was Dutch Reform, right? And the Dutch were clannish. If you're not Dutch, you're not much. Okay. <laughs> And they were so good at forcing all everybody to stay in the clan that everybody that was Dutch ended up in the Dutch Reformed Church whether they believed in the gospel or not. Because you didn't dare not be there. Because you would be shunned. Okay? So they were all in church. Well, then, so here I'm a, uh, a teenager growing up in Sheldon, Iowa, and all of these other Dutch kids... They were just as big as sinners as I was, if not worse. That's possible. <laughs> and, but at least I knew I wasn't a Christian. And they, and they were in church on Sunday, and they were these big sinners. 
So I get this commentary, and I'm reading the back cover, and oh no, reformed. Uh, I just wasted 25 bucks. I, should I send this thing back or what? And I thought, well, I'll read it. Let's see what this guy has to say. And once I started reading it, I realized this is the gospel. This was just dead-on gospel. Absolutely. It wasn't extreme, and it wasn't what I thought it would be. And I kept it, and I read other commentaries. And I come to realize, after studying Romans, that salvation is a work of God. Now, can we find that in 1 Corinthians? Well, let's just take a look here and see if we can. Look at verse 30, 1 Corinthians 1. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, does it say here, by his doing plus your part? I don't see that in there. It says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. So that it just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, Eric was talking about that last week. Paul is really interested in this issue of boasting. And Paul teaches the doctrine of salvation that gives man absolutely nothing to boast in. All we can say, I've told you this before, my favorite line in the movie Amazing Grace. By the way, I like that movie, Amazing Grace. And this um, guy who wrote the song, what was it, John? Newton, Newton. My favorite line, I've told you this before, but my favorite line in the entire movie, here's this guy going blind, mopping a church, former slave trader, said this. He says, I only know two things. After all of these years, I only know two things. Number one, I'm a great sinner. Number two, Jesus is a greater Savior. <laughs> that's, that's what we need to know. Jesus is a greater Savior. His grace is greater than all our sin. Remember the song we sing about that? Greater than all our sin. He can take somebody who's a wretch, deserving nothing but hell, having done absolutely nothing to contribute to his own salvation or her own salvation, and he can take that person and bring to them amazing grace that's greater than all our sin. And once I came to understand that, 1986, now that's going on a few years ago, 24 years, my boldness in preaching the gospel has never been greater. Because I absolutely know that if God's going to save somebody, it's going to be him. And I absolutely know that if he's going to do it, he's going to do it through the gospel. And I absolutely know that if I preach the gospel, God will use that to save whoever he's going to save. And so just put it out there for what it is. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't make it sound enticing. Warn people. Tell people they're under the wrath of God. Uh, unless they repent, tell them that only by the blood atonement will anything be changed. And lay it all out there. And God will use it. I hate to bring you back to verse 5. Nope. That's Friday. all right. We can go back. I'm sure that Eric covered this, but it talks about you're not lacking in any gift. We got a lot of abuse of that little phrase over the years. But he's talking to the Corinthians, and they had all the gifts. They thought they did. Is that the same thing? Well, ultimately in 1 Corinthians, they became 
Paul uh, warns them about bragging about their gifts or taking stands on what gifts they have. If they, if whatever they have, they have in Christ. And then so when you get into 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about gifts, the primary concern that Paul has is that no one in the body would be dishonored. Okay? The eye can't say, I don't need you, you're the ear, whatever. All the, You remember that? And, and that comes up in chapter 12, comes up in chapter 11. So Paul wants the Corinthians to realize that the honor, there is honor, by the way, that God bestows upon us. The honor that we have is that God adopted us into his family. Okay? But every single person, young or old, male or female, seemingly gifted or seemingly rather ordinary, is equally honored in the body of Christ. That's what his point is. Okay? So you have gifts. You have a special calling that God may use you in a way that he doesn't use somebody else. But the amount of honor that God bestows on the body is equal for everyone. And one of the signs of severe sickness in the body of Christ, one of the horrible things that ever happens in any church is whether when certain leaders want to have honor lavished on them at the expense of everybody around them. It's, it's really bad. You know, I remember when I was in Bible college, I had some fantastic teachers. And one great teacher back in the early 70s was Dr. I don't know if he ever got a doctor's degree. Well, anyhow, we called them Brother Snow back then. Uh, Reverend William Snow was my teacher of pastoral theology. Pastoral theology simply meant how not to be an idiot when you're a pastor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Reverend Snow saw everybody screw up that you could ever imagine screw up, and he was going to make sure we didn't do it. Okay. So Reverend Snow, uh, one of his favorite sayings was, he says, all right, brothers, back then there was only men in the class, he says, all right, brothers, I want you to know something that you need to really listen to. Whatever you do, never use everyone else as a dark background for your own would-be brilliance. <laughs> okay, you're not that great. Just get it through your head right now that you're not. And you're not more important than anybody else. And just come into the body of Christ to serve. That's what Reverend Snow taught. I love that man. You know, he was, I'm sure he's with the Lord now. He has, yeah, in fact, I heard that he is. He, if he was still alive, he'd probably be 110. But he, he continually tried to help us young men wanting to go into the ministry not to have bad motives, not to think about self, not to think about self-exaltation. Okay, so what's important to God is that every single member of the body of Christ is honored as much as any other member. And nobody else is singled out, you know, as some bright shining star. I think God that Brother Snow was there to teach that, and he's unbelievably right. The sad thing is that I don't know how many listened to him, but the way the Lord has a way of getting you to listen. 
okay? My wife bought these things. I was telling somebody about that. What do you say? Somebody came up and said, well, you're, I like the fact that you're humble. I go, hmm. <laughs> what do you say to that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and so what I said was this. I said, well, the Lord has his means. Now, my wife bought these things, and I think that's kind of what the Lord uses. They're these balls with little nubby ends on them. They're about this big around. They go in the dryer. And when you turn on the dryer, they go boom, 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 boom. They beat the daylights out of everything in there. I said, the Lord has his plan for humility. <laughs> Throw you in the dryer, put the balls in there, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and when you finally come out, okay, I get it. <laughs> so... <laughs> Humble's a good thing, but if you pray for it, I don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> it's like praying for patience. <laughs> yes, over here. Thank you very much. Um, I agree that uh, I'm not uh, I'm not saved by committee action without question. It's God alone. I don't have anything to do with it. Nobody else has anything to do with it. But I just want to say something. I just like to have you either redefine it, get, see if I'm off track or whatever. Okay. My, my sanctific, sanctification is on the basis of that salvation. Yes. And um, the gifts, the spiritual gifts, what we speak, has a purpose that I was given those gifts. And what was, and I have an idea what that is to do. But perhaps you... Well, okay. I'll, you go ahead. Well, sanctification proceeds along the same lines as salvation, although sanctification is progressive. Okay. And the God uses means. So how does he, what means does he use to save us? Well, the preaching of the word, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we put ourselves under the means of grace. God uses those to sanctify us. The gifts that he gives us, according to 1 Corinthians 12, which Eric will get to eventually, are for us to serve the body. Okay? They're for serving other people. And that's Paul's primary concern. And what his concern was with the Corinthian church was their arrogance, their exalting one over another. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, you know, and so on, boasting. They were doing everything wrong, okay? If God gave you a gift, it's only to serve the body. It's not for you to have status that somebody else lacks. Does that make sense? Yep. I think God calls us to do something terribly counterintuitive because what's intuitive is probably of Satan. What's uh, counterintuitive is that we should make ourselves vulnerable to the world around us and that these gifts are our means by which God uses us to be able to do that, to reach the people, the lost, to reach, to go out and to reach yeah, people. absolutely. We should, uh, we're here to serve. That's it. If, if God didn't want us to serve, he'd just take us immediately to heaven. Be a lot better there. I don't know if you were here last week, but I mentioned I listened to uh, John MacArthur talking about this book written by Joel Osteen called Your Best Life Now. And MacArthur made a brilliant observation. It's obvious. I don't know why I never thought of it myself. But he said the only possible way to have your best life now is to be an unbeliever. Because if you're an unbeliever and you reject the gospel you got a way better now than you're going to have in the future. <laughs> and he said, on the other hand, if you are a Christian, it's impossible that your best life is happening now. 
Because now we're struggling with sin, weakness, problems, and in the future, all those things are going to go away. So if you think about how in the world, just try to get your head around this idea. How in the world can the pastor of supposedly the biggest church in America that's evangelical get that messed up? How could he not know that your best life is not now if you're a Christian? How could he not, uh, how could he miss that? It's like unbelievable. How did we get to this point? Well, we got to it by thinking human-centered theology, human-centered thoughts, and not paying attention to the Scripture. Let's go on in 1 Corinthians here. Verse 6, Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ as His return, Verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so what's that teaching in verse 8? Is that not the perseverance of the saints? Absolutely. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord. There is again the internal calling or the effectual calling. That's what that means. Verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Let me talk about this here a bit. This sort of the personality cult that can happen, unfortunately, in the body of Christ. The, the fact is, that when someone is converted, they are called, they're brought into the body of Christ, and they're made a part of the family of God. And that includes the local church that we're part of now. It includes the church universal and triumphant, ultimately, when we go to heaven. It's going to include the marriage supper of the Lamb and everyone God's ever saved. And it's God's doing that we're in Christ, as I just read to you in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. But what about the personality cult? How does that get going? Well, unfortunately, it's happened throughout church history. There's some preacher or some person who claims to be some high and mighty teacher or gifted person or apostle or prophet or whatever they claim to be, and then people line up under that person. And they depend on that person for just about everything. I was talking to a... I found out about this when I wrote this article. Boy, you should have seen the ire of the people. I wrote an article about hyper-dispensationalism, which is taught by this guy named Les Feldig. You can't imagine the personality cult that's going going on under this guy. I got nasty, just (laughs) angry 
horrific letters and emails and stuff from his followers. How could how dare you disagree with him? Well, hardly any of them wanted to actually talk. They are all parroting back the same thing. No, it's da 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 da. Okay. I said, okay, Paul said he was a minister of the New Covenant. This Lesfeld teaches that only Paul's writings are authoritative in the church. We can basically ignore everything else with no peril. Only Paul's. And he also teaches that there's no New Covenant that we're a part of. The New Covenant is only for the Jews, it's not for the church. So I I, I take a verse and said, okay, Paul said he's a minister of the New Covenant, 2 Corinthians. How could Paul, if you if you believe what you say you believe, that only Paul is authoritative, and Paul says he's a minister of the new covenant, then how can Les Feldig teach that there's no new covenant under Paul? So I write that back to these angry people. Oh, it doesn't mean that. Somebody else, one of his followers writes to me and says, Peter had a different gospel than Paul. You, you can't understand it. You don't know what you're talking about. So I quote them from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that's what they teach, that's what we teach. He, Paul explicitly says he has the same gospel as Peter. So I sent him that verse to this angry person who's a follower of Les Feldick. And she writes back and says, well, it doesn't mean that. Well, what does it mean? Okay, so here you have the ultimate personality cult. And and they say, well, he's not after money, and he's humble, he's the sheep farmer. I don't care. Watch out for kindly old gentlemen. They'll be the worst wolves. Okay, the guy that totally destroyed Bethel Seminary was a kindly old gentleman. No, I'm not talking about you, Doug. But you can't go by that sort of thing. The fact is, what does the Bible say? So of all the examples of I'm of Apollos or whatever I've ever seen is I'm of Les Feldick. Whatever he says, that's what I believe. Now, I was talking to a pastor from North Dakota who was down here for a wedding whose wife was one of my daughter's best friends in high school. And he, he had a Les Feldick follower in his church who got mad and left because he wouldn't agree because his pastor wouldn't agree with Les Feldick. And so they were debating this stuff. And he'd say to this lady, well, what about this passage here? Oh, I don't know. I'll have to ask Les Feldick. Well, what about this passage? I don't know. I'll have to ask Les Feldick. So what she believed wasn't what she gleaned from Scripture. It was what Les Feldick told her. I wouldn't want that to happen. I would not want that to happen. I wouldn't want anybody to ever say that about me. Absolutely. Forget it. If you want to ask somebody, ask Eric. (laughs) Okay, go ahead, Bill. (laughs) Well, the Bible says no disciple is greater than the master. So that if you make your master uh, somebody who would have a vision and then you get caught up in that vision or, you know, doctrinal whatever, then you're not going to be greater than that person. So, so Les Felix, uh, best thing he could do is point people to Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, if his vision of Jesus Christ is skewed, which you just demonstrated it is, uh, his his disciples are going to be skewed. Yeah, and well, you know, and this goes on as you well know, Bill. I've been hearing more about the, there's a guy, uh, Bill Johnson, out in Redding, California. 
he's the new prophet out there, and I've been hearing about that continually. Well, they're going to have more signs and wonders than the book of Acts or what have you. So what do we learn from this passage here? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Well, that what Paul is telling us, that we can't take teachers that God may raise up, it's not that there was anything wrong with Peter or Apollos or Paul for that matter, but we can't take teachers that God may raise up and give them some sort of special status as if they were, I think Eric was talking about this, as if they were like the Greek sophists. They were the rhetoricians, the, the purveyors of Gnosis and Sophia. But all we have and all we know is what God's revealed in Scripture. And so we don't want to go beyond what is written. Christ has been divided, no. Look at this one, by the way. Let's back to this, Les Feldig. I think God, I baptized none of you. Feldig claims that Christian baptism is not for Christians. Yep. Baptism, water baptism is not for the church. Well, then you say, well, what about the Great Commission? Go and make disciples, baptizing them. No, the Great Commission wasn't for the church either. So you can ignore what Jesus said. You can ignore the Great Commission. Don't worry about baptizing anybody. Paul did for a while, but he didn't know any better. He finally figured out he shouldn't be doing that. Now, what is Paul saying here? You can get yourself out of a lot of trouble by just looking at context. Paul is saying, you know, if I baptized you, you'd have some reason to say I'm a Paul. You know, it doesn't matter who baptizes you, okay? That you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're baptized. It doesn't matter who did it. You know, some people say, well, I was baptized by this famous evangelist, and it was done in the Jordan River. Okay. Does that make you more baptized? (laughs) If Billy Graham baptized you in the Jordan River, would you be really baptized? (laughs) Okay. It doesn't doesn't work that way. Okay, We just go over to Lake Johanna, and that's good enough. It's too expensive to go to the Jordan River. Verse 18, chapter 1. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. You know, these verses here, 18... Through 25, if they were believed literally, if they were taken to heart and cherished as the very Word of God and understood as clear teaching from an infallible apostle, infallible in the sense that he was writing Scripture and the Scripture cannot fail, the entire seeker-sensitive movement would end tomorrow. It would be done. Absolutely, be done. Everything that they say, everything they do, is predicated on the idea that this is false. That you could somehow or another make a nice version of Christianity that people will be happy with without repenting. Okay? And I've heard from hundreds of people, I'm not (laughs) being melodramatic. I'm not exaggerating. I, I have not written them all down so I can keep the numbers, but there's hundreds of people 
that have called me or emailed me or written me since 2004 when I first wrote about this issue. And they all have the same story. Hundreds and hundreds of people. Well, our church used to preach the gospel and we used to sing hymns about the blood and about the cross. And then the pastor went off to a seminar and he came back and pretty soon the cross is gone. Pretty soon the piano's gone. Pretty soon the pulpit's gone. (laughs) Pretty soon, you know, one thing after another. And then they have a stage. I Literally, I saw this uh, video. You know how they put everything on YouTube nowadays and then people can link it? Here's a pastor up on a bare stage with all of the accoutrements gone. All right, not that you have to have a pulpit, but, you know, it just signifies the fact we're not going to preach the word. Okay? Um, gospel churches historically always have a pulpit right in the middle of the, of the church that signifies that the Word of God is central. Okay? If you're a liturgical church, like what I grew up in, the pulpit will be off to the side and you'll have some sort of an altar, communion, or whatever in the middle. And they're saying the sacraments are central. All right? We're a gospel church, so we get the pulpit in the middle. The Word of God is central. Now, um, so all this stuff is gone, and I'm watching this video, and you know what the guy's got in the middle of his stage? A toilet. I'm not making this up. I saw it. He's, he's, he's going back and forth on and preaching to people, and, what, and his main prop is a toilet. What does that signify? <laughs> I think it signifies where that church went. <laughs> but anyhow, um, the if, if we just believe that, listen, here's what it says. Let's just read this and apply it. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. All right, so what would happen? Just logically think this through with me. What would happen if you went out here in the neighborhood and talked to the perishing and asked them what they would like in a church? What do you think you would get? Do you think? Do you, do you believe that even one of the perishing would say, what I would like in a church is the word of the cross? No. Want to hear about a crucified Jewish Messiah? No. I want to hear about God's wrath against my sin. No. I want to hear about blood atonement. No. But that is literally church growth theory. Okay? And I'm not making this up. I studied under a disciple of the leading church growth theorists that's ever existed in the church. And the, and the theorist is a man by the name of Donald McGavran. And he started the Fuller School of Missions back in the 50s. And McGavran had been out on a mission field. And he came back from the mission field with his one basic idea, in which I was taught by a fellow at Bethel Seminary. And the basic idea is people do not become Christians for theological reasons, 
they become Christians for sociological reasons. Okay, and so now what we need to do to extend the world missions is to study sociology. And so you look at a people group, and he and that was one of his terms of people groups, and I had to read his books, I had to write papers about it, I didn't agree with any of it, but you study a people group, and you, and you start looking at them and say, what makes them tick? And if I can figure out what makes them tick... I could create a version of Christianity that they would be attracted to. And then he called, he talked about what he called people movements. All right? So if you get this people group and they're all attracted to the same thing, you can get the whole works to come at once. So instead of thinking so much of individual sinners repenting, you think of a whole big, huge tribe coming in and becoming Christian. And you, so you study the people and you find out what makes them tick and what they like and what they do and what have you. And then you scientifically design a church service that they would like, that the, the, whoever the people group is. And so I studied this and, of course, I disagreed with it. How can you say that people become Christians for sociological reasons? I became a Christian because God convicted me of my sin, and he converted me. And sociologically, I had absolutely nothing in common with the people that I went to go fellowship with. <laughs> absolutely not. All right, I grew up on the Beatles. I'll admit it, I'm old. Okay, when, when they came out in 1964 with, I want to hold your hand, how risque is that? pretty innocent back in those days. I want to hold your hand. <laughs> and they were playing on the radio. I was hooked. All right, I was in the Beatles, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin before I was saved. So that's my people group. 1971, I'm converted through the gospel. And the first place I went to church was the little Assemblies of God church that had led Diane's family to the Lord. And I was like 40 years younger than everybody. I can't see that anymore. <laughs> I don't think I'm 40 years younger than anybody here. But anyhow, I was back then. And they were singing when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And they, uh, they were old people. And they were, they'd, Sunday night, we'd have a Sunday night service. And then after the service, nobody wanted to go home, so we gathered around the piano and sang hymns as long as the pianist would stay there and playing. I was there. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. There's not one sociological factor that would ever led me into that church. Zero. None. But there was a theological factor that did, and it's called conversion. Now, I'm not saying you have to sing old hymns with old people. To be a Christian, but not it helps. <laughs> Good one. I like that. It does help. It's not a bad idea. But the point is, when God converts people, all the sociological factors become unimportant. Because when you come into this fellowship, or any fellowship where they're truly converted, this is your sister in the Lord. This is your brother in the Lord. 
This is your adopted family. These are the people that you're going to be with for all eternity. I don't care about sociology. And so it seemed innocent enough at the time, if you go back to 1955 when McGavern was writing his books, and somebody I think, well, you know, we've got this new science of sociology. Why not use it to help the church grow? It seemed so, uh, almost innocent or innocuous, but it was the biggest poison pill ever fed to the church. And the result of that poison pill is Joel Osteen and everything like him. So what does it say here? The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This right here is the end of church growth theory. Yes? There's a uh, cross-reference in this passage uh, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It's actually uh, 15, but I'm going to pick it up in 14. It says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession oh, yeah. and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Amen. Dear Brother Robert, that, that section right there, I heard a message by John MacArthur. I played it here one time in our Sunday school. I heard a message by John MacArthur on that passage. It changed my life permanently. It, it was the best. Uh, you know, I, I point to 86 when my theology got straightened out, and I point to the late 90s when I heard MacArthur preach on that passage. And once I heard that message by MacArthur... He says, you are bringing glory to God when you preach the gospel, even when it's rejected. That's based on that passage. Some people are perishing, some people are being saved, but either way, it's a sweet aroma to God. Uh, the, the preaching, uh, and there's a triumphal, and he talked about the triumphal procession, you know. Yes. The... Uh, sociological aspect of society isn't wouldn't couldn't you say that's a, that's a reflection of some theological beliefs whatever that society yeah that's be. a good point they the idea that uh, yeah we don't need the theology we just need sociology but that point itself is a theological idea that you can somehow bring people to Christ by tweaking their sociological factors absolutely at the end of the day it's theological it's what God says about himself. What does it say in Romans 1? In fact, I was sitting in the class from underneath a professor who was a personal disciple of Donald McGavern. And that poor professor, I, was in, I disagreed with him day after day after day after day. And I, I so disagreed with him. He's probably the most liberal guy at that seminary. I'm trying to be nice about it, but I, no, 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 no. I couldn't, I couldn't sit there and let these students listen to this. Finally, toward the end of the class one time, he went up the chalkboard and started pounding his head against it <laughs> after I said something. So I thought, I don't know what to do with this delay in my class, making my life miserable. And I said, <laughs> I said, how can you say this? 
Just read Romans 1. Why is it people are rejecting the gospel? Because they won't listen to what God has said, whether it's in general revelation or special revelation. They have theological reasons. I don't want to listen to God. Okay, not just sociological ones. You know what? I Maybe I'd spend an hour on sociology out of a whole seminary career. And then I wouldn't take it too seriously. I've debated with a friend of mine who went out to Fuller and studied under all this stuff, and it just about ruined him. I said, why are you spending hours and hours and hours and weeks and weeks and weeks studying sociology out at Fuller? I said, maybe one hour, one hour. Well, what do you learn an hour? Well, what are suburbanites in St. Louis Park like? Okay, fine, go on, preach the gospel. But they put their whole, that's, that's, all their eggs are in that basket. They study man, and they think that's going to work just as good as studying the Bible. And then they get totally misguided. They end up with the Schulers and the Rick Warrens and the Bill Hyables and the Joel Osteens. And, uh, right here, listen to this. The word of the cross is foolishness of those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. So what do you want? Do you want people to be saved or not? Well, yeah, so we'll then preach the word of the cross. That's where the power of God is. By the way, take a good look at this. When Paul is defining power, he doesn't define it by signs and wonders. He defines it by the power of God to save the lost through the cross. Okay, Signs and wonders can be counterfeited or duplicated or what have you by pharaohs and magicians. But the power of the cross is unique to the Christian gospel. For it is written, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness, using irony, of the message preached to save those who believed. Believe. Wow. For the Jews ask for signs, the Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and the Gentiles' foolishness. Think about it. Let this just sink in. Let's make an application. Paul is saying that he preaches what he knows sociologically nobody wants to hear. The Jews don't like it, the Gentiles don't like it, so that's what we're going to preach. So why preach something that nobody likes? Because God is going to use it to save them. (laughs) Hostile sinners. You would think Paul doesn't know this? Who was Paul? Was he a guy that was sort of being wooed, oh, I think this sounds good, it's crucified Messiah. No, he was breathing hostility and blasphemy against God, going and looking for Christian disciples in his hatred of the gospel. And what happened to him? Well, Christ had a different idea, didn't he? He converted his Paul. And so... We have to preach the gospel. We can't just wait and hope that all of a sudden people think, oh, I would like to hear about the cross. Yes. If I may 
uh, make mention to a verse 21 um, to those who believe. Read the whole thing. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Yep. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And yep. I hate to think that the, the cultural overlay is so heavy there. Because what I tend to get out of it, and correct me, please, but to those who, who to, to save those who, and then I kind of in my mind, I think, realize who they are, what they've done, repented of it, uh-huh. and realize that believing is my option, my, my, great, my, my great privilege to do because God's moved my heart and drawn my heart to do it. But otherwise, it seems like a work. You know, I, I believe something yeah. I do. Okay, good question. According to Ephesians 2 and verse 8, even believing is a gift of God, but he uses the gospel, okay? Somebody needs to preach the gospel. I was telling a story here before over we having coffee, how a chain of events happened that I ended up being converted through people that the Lord used. But my wife's brother was a teenager. Her dad used to organize teen dances uh, down at the community center because he tried to, he wanted the teens to be at the community center so they'd be in less trouble. They run around out on the streets. So he was down there as a volunteer all the time with the teens. Uh, by, by the way, her dad is one of the most well-respected people anywhere he's ever been. But anyhow, her brother was this rebellious sinner like anybody else. And they were having this dance, and outside of the dance hall, as the people were coming out of the dance, was this preacher, this Pentecostal gospel preacher. And he was preaching the gospel, and the kids were coming out and kind of getting around him in a big circle to mock him. They were spitting at him, they were hurling abuse at him, they were calling him, they were swearing, they were doing all of this nasty stuff to this guy because he was preaching the gospel. And, and Diane's brother, Jim, comes out, and these are his buddies, and he's standing there with them, and he looks around, and he says, I don't, in his mind, why are they doing this? And he got convicted, and he got down on his knees. I'm sorry. He humbled himself, got down on his knees right in front of that little preacher, I mean, little, this guy was smaller than me, and I only weighed 140. Because not too much later, I was threatening to beat him up for leading my wife to the Lord. <laughs> Thankfully, it didn't happen. I got saved and said, Jim got down on his knees in front of all of his friends and repented and asked Jesus Christ to save him. So who knows what's going to happen? After Jim got saved, his dad got saved, then Diane got saved, and then the last one was me. I was the worst. And, uh, but the Lord even got through my hard heart. So, you know what? I thank God that somebody was willing to stand out there and preach even though he was being mocked. Because God used it. Yes, Robert. I think of the verse in Second um, Corinthians chapter four, uh, starting in uh, verse five. It says, "We, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, wow. with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake." Verse six: For God, who said, "Let light shine out of darkness," has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. You know, every time I hear that verse, I have to think of the commentary by A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar from early 20th century. He was commenting on the verses, we do not proclaim ourselves. Robertson says, ourselves is the worst sermon topic anybody ever thought of. <laughs> okay. There's no good news there, but let's proclaim Jesus Christ. That's where the good news is. Dear ones, I commend to you the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of the cross. And by God's grace, we will not deviate from that, but the Lord won't let us. I'm so disgusted by the whole seeker-sensitive thing, I would be embarrassed to even entertain one aspect of it in my mind. I'm totally confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm not at all confident in my ability to become attractive sociologically to somebody out there. But once they're converted, it doesn't matter. You can be 100 years old or you can be 10 years old. When you're converted, you're all one in Christ. I love that. I love that. It's not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus. Thank you for allowing me to walk through a little bit of First Corinthians today and make some applications.